evening, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you again joining us, uh, listening to our weekly podcast here. And tonight we uh, have a special guest with us, Dr. Greg, Greg Postel, hurricane expert at the Weather Channel. Uh, you probably have seen Greg throughout the, well, gosh, I don't know, the last couple of seasons been so active. You've probably seen Greg numerous times on the Weather Channel giving you updates about all the hurricanes and tropical storms going on. So tonight we're going to dive a deep into his career, kind of talk about his weather journey and his uh, job title there at the Weather Channel and some other uh, fun things that he's been able to do in this media, uh, meteorology journey. So, uh, Greg, welcome to the show. I know you, you joined us a few years ago, but uh, for those who may uh, be new to the program or may have not seen that episode, uh, let us uh, give you the opportunity to introduce yourself and kind of tell us a little bit about your weather journey and how you got hooked into weather. Well, when I was little, I never thought I'd be on TV. I can tell you that much. Um, I didn't know how it was going to come around, but um, I've been with the Weather Channel for about 10 years as one of their hurricane experts. And uh, I think 2012 is when I started. And I've had sort of three separate careers as an adult, right? So I was in, I was in school for a long time, bachelor's, master's, PhD at the University of Wisconsin. And I was studying hurricanes and did a postdoc there on sort of the origins of hurricanes from African easterly waves. So I thought for a while there, a long time ago, that my career was going to follow the typical you know, academic path that I'd either work at a research university or end up in a, on a faculty somewhere. Um, but then during the postdoc, I got this uh, great opportunity to join the private sector um, where it was uh, in the weather, weather risk management industry, which um, is sort of a blend of um, trying to mix weather research and its weather effect on the economy. Uh, and I thought it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. So I took that and I was kind of more of a um, exploring uh, predictability, uh, weather predictability, in particular in tropical cyclones as well. I kept my hand in that uh, pot, but also more generally the gen global circulation and the patterns that arise uh, that can really change um, the impact on society, big cold waves, you know, heat waves, um, all kinds of things like that, snowstorms. And so I was in that industry in the weather uh, risk management unit of a company called Guaranteed Weather out of, outside of Kansas City. And I was there for about 10 years. And then, and then I thought, you know what, I think I want to try this uh, public sector thing. And so I, I quit my job and worked for nine bucks an hour in a small market in Lawrence, Kansas, <laughs> and uh, worked one day a week. And I figured I'd give myself a shot for a couple of years and see if I could make myself uh, into at least a have some chance at, in the TV uh, business. And it worked out out of nowhere. I don't remember how it happened, but Brian Norcross from the Weather Channel gave me a ring and uh, I guess knew me because we had uh, common friends. And um, well, there you go. And then I ended up at the Weather Channel. So I've sort of been in three uh, professional sectors um, in the last 20 years. Uh, and of course, like all of us, my interest in weather started literally from day one. And I don't know if a lot of people know this, but um, my first words were, it's cold outside. <laughs> and my, the reason why I'm so interested in wind, and Shay and I have this sort of thing uh, where, you know, we talk about wind gusts and storms all the time. Um, I was, when I was very little, my mom put me out in a carriage and outside, I was born in October, it was really warm. Uh, and so I was outside, I was looking at the trees blowing around and that was like my mobile, 
you know, like how little kids have their mobiles in their cribs. It was the trees blowing in the wind that did it for me. And so that sent me off in weather. And I knew I was going to do that um, from day one. And then academic, private sector, Weather Channel, and here I am. What got you interested in hurricanes in general? I mean, you say the blowing of trees, but like tropical yeah. cyclones, that's a whole different beast. It is. But, you know, the thing is, is I grew up in New Jersey. And so my first experience with a hurricane and a lot of wind was Hurricane Bell in 1976. And I remember vividly that passing by the house. Uh, and that sort of kind of registered and made the connection between, oh, wind and weather and hurricanes from a very early age. And and then, of course, we had a couple of close calls with hurricanes and I started building um weather stations outside of my house in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, I had barometer, like an, one of those recording aneroid barometers. Um, of course, I built, yeah, I put on uh, anemometers on top of the roof. And I had a really good document of um, Gloria in 1985, I think it was. That's a long time ago. So I think it was like September of 85 where I still have, and I, I just actually not that long ago tweeted out, the, uh, the, the bear graph trace of it passing just off the Jersey shore and then it ultimately making landfall in Long Island. Um, and so I've always had this fascination with tropical cyclones and, and how they behave and why they cause so much wind in, in oftentimes irregular ways. And so um, when I was a postdoc, uh, one of the things that I wanted to do is try to understand uh, how tropical cyclones developed in the first place from African easterly waves. Um, I didn't take it beyond that because the private sector kept calling <laughs> and I was like, I can't turn that down. How do you feel the for, the forecasting efforts for hurricanes has evolved or become better over the years? It makes our job a lot easier. I mean, the great scientists who are studying that right now and, and trying to understand and, and predict um, you know, and narrow that the, the window of opportunity there for hurricane site or tropical cyclone tracks is just phenomenal how it's improved. And it is, you know, it, it's pretty amazing that now, you know, within, you know, well, you know, several days, you have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen. But, but even beyond that, let's sort of step back for a second and look at numerical weather prediction as a whole. Now it's very, very easy to throw out a day 10 forecast, which, you know, is, um, probably more acceptable to do 20 years ago when, you know, let's say the GFS started coming out with its day 10 and day, what, 384 hour forecast years, many, 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 many years ago. But now we have come to the point where uh, overall numerical weather prediction is the place where there is information, reliable information that's beyond a week. And you just have to know what is being conveyed and what's realistic and what's not. Now, of course, the details um, are not, um, really predictable beyond a few days, and certainly beyond a week. But there is value in that forecast. And I find it is a, is a, you know, the position that I'm in now at the Weather Channel is to try to find those moments and those regimes where the models are latching onto something. Forget the details for a second, but it's telling you something important that you shouldn't reflexively throw away that so many of us are tempted to do based on a long history of models being wrong. And that's fine. A model being wrong is still information, right? All forecasts are wrong. You just got to find out what combination of them is the optimal solution out of it. Greg, I want to piggyback a little bit of what you were just discussing there and the trend that we've seen. And excuse me, I can't remember all the the storms we had in 2020, there were so many. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we've even had our fair share here in, in, in 2021. But uh, one uh, 
theme that we've seen that's kind of concerning is the storms making their final approach to land and they're intensifying. And uh, we've seen that over the last several years. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts to why that is. I mean, that is a concerning trend uh, that, that we've observed over the last few years. And, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, we can better forecast that as you were talking about. But what mm-hmm. are some of those, uh, what do you think is contributing to that? It's hard to imagine that the sea surface temperatures, the warming of the waters and how, how warm they are uh, relative to average, you know, right up close to the coast. Uh, in recent years, how hard to imagine that that's not playing a role. I mean, all else being equal, right? You warm the water temperatures, you create a bit more buoyancy for the inflowing air. And, you know, I mean, I just remember Hurricane Michael, right, in 2018, uh, how I've never in my life seen a tropical cyclone intensify right up to landfall in that part of the Gulf of Mexico. Normally, we would, in, in you know, recent decades, Storm after storm would weaken on final approach, as you were talking about, um, oftentimes because of cooler shelf waters that was apparent. But with Michael, um, it kind of and many other storms that you, you, you were sort of alluding to that we've seen a lot of this lately, where these storms are just spinning up on the last few hours. And I don't know the answer to that. Um, I'm sure our hurricane research friends are working on that problem and have been for a while, but it's hard to imagine that the SST anomalies that we're now seeing um, so frequently um, in, for the North, example, the Northern Gulf or along the East Coast, uh, even now, that they're not playing a role. You, I just can't extract that from and, and imagine that that's not part of the issue. So I guess warm water uh, all else being equal, has got to be a, a big player. We have had a very active season. I, I want to say since 2016, it, it's, it's mm-hmm. been pretty active. Uh, 2020, we ran out of names. We have one name left in 2021. So another concerning trend is, is the activity continues to pick up. And I know that you all are in the, in the hurricane and the tropics world are studying these trends. So do you think this continues over the next few years? Uh, is this just a cycle or is this something that – you know, long term is something we're going to have to face. <laughs> I think we have to concern ourselves with some of the things that the, in the longer term, um, in the decades to come, you know, the intensity of these uh, tropical cyclones. And in particular, as you were mentioning, the intensity uh, right up to landfall with the warming waters. Um, you know, this year has been kind of weird. It, it was very active early on in the last month. Uh, it's almost shut down. And I was looking at some of the atmospheric data in the last month. And it seems like it's become a bit more hostile over the main development region of the tropical Atlantic. I mean, it's a little bit late to see development uh, this time of year that far out anyway. But overall, there's, it's, it's just uncomfortably windy aloft. It's a bit sheery out there. There's, the stability is a bit higher than, than average. And those things kind of conspire to uh, make it a bit quieter than average. So we've seen that lately. But you're right. I mean, over the past few years, you know, you can, it's almost like you can bank on it, right? You know that next year's forecast is probably going to be for, you know, a, a higher than average uh, number um, based on, you know, some of the generic parameters that are used in these seasonal forecasts. But, you know, what, what really matters uh, in a given season, obviously, are the landfalls. Uh, and um, hurricane season offers up windows 
where tropical development is more likely than others. Now, there are global controls on why that's happening, various factors, circulations like the MJO, things like that, that and Kelvin wave activity that move across the tropics that open up the window uh, for a couple of weeks and then shut it, right? So those are the primary things that we have to see in the data, if they're trends in the long run, if those become um, situated in a way that allow more activity to develop. Um, but over and above those sort of intraseasonal variations, yeah, I mean, you know, the obvious trend is, seems to be uh, to, we're in an active phase right now, and it's hard to imagine over the next few years that that component uh, is going to go away quickly. Those are slow mode, slow evolving things, and that next year and the year after that are probably going to be sort of uh, correlated with what we've seen lately. The lag correlation is probably fairly substantial. Certainly uh, going into another La Nina doesn't help either. When you're in an El Nino, typically, as we all know, that you typically get less. Uh, of course, there's no guarantee, but it kind of tries to nudge it toward the less active phase. And this past year, we were in La Nina. And I mean, who knows what that's going to look like next year. Um, but you know, even more important than that are those you know, sort of month-by-month -month variations, like as I mentioned, like Kelvin waves and, and MJO. So those are really important factors. In your more than two decades of watching these tropical cyclones develop mm -hmm. out in the main development region and, and move to the West and impact the United States, what are some of the storms that really stand out to you as the most significant in your career? Hurricane Michael was by far and away the most memorable storm that I ever covered at the Weather Channel. Um, I was there, I think, right up to landfall. And then I think Dr. Nab came on, Rick Nab. Um, right at right about then. And it was just one of those things that I just couldn't believe what I was watching. And I could not keep up with the level of intensity um, in the warning because I knew uh, that there was just a few hours time that people could listen to what I was saying and, and act accordingly. It was really scary. Uh, and I went and toured the damage afterward. I couldn't believe what I saw. It was, the, it was some of the worst damage um, that, I've, that I've seen uh, wind-wise from a tropical cyclone. It was, again, one of those storms where it reminds us that wind can do a hell of a lot more damage than water. Was there one specifically from your childhood that you remember mm. just being like, wow, that, that it was a driving factor in getting you to, to undergrad and grad school? That was Hurricane Bell, yeah, in oh. 1976. That crawled up the East Coast. I think it made it into Long Island as a Cat 2, maybe-ish. Um, and I just remember it being a really stormy night where I was. We had school off. <laughs> I was like in first or second grade, I remember. But um, that was huge. And then, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Gloria in the mid-1980s. By then, I was a you know, full-fledged you know, amateur meteorologist. I had equipment all over the house. And you know, my, fr my friends and neighbors were calling me, how bad is it going to be? And I still have all the data from that one. Um, where pressure traces and anemometer uh, recordings were were really memorable. And it was it's still um, one of those things that stands out. Greg, uh, since we're the Carolina Weather Group, which Carolina hurricane sticks out most in your mind? Not the hockey team, an actual hurricane. But I was in Wrightsville Beach for Felix, 1999 Felix, I think. And that here's an interesting story. You're going to love this one with Jim Cantore. Okay, legends, right? So 1999, I drive to the beach in uh, Wrightsville Beach uh, and I see the Weather Channel truck. At this time, I was still, I was a postdoc, I think 99. Either that I was finishing my PhD in Madison or I was a postdoc. Anyway, I was hurricane chasing and I see the Weather Channel truck and I have all my weather equipment. I have my car. I got my weather, I got my, my anemometer mounted with PVC piping on top of the car. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't even a Davis equipment. It was like an old, um, I can't remember. Anyway, 
And Cantori comes up to me and says, hey, dude. And, and I swear, it was just like this. He goes, hey, dude, c- can I get your uh, information while I cover this? I'm like, yeah, sure. You can do whatever you want. And so he, he kind of, he brought me into his broadcast and he brought me into the, 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 the truck, the Weather Channel um, broadcast truck. And we had pizza together. And every once in a while, I also had a, a little Kestrel handheld. And he took that out and, and uh, did his recording and showed that on TV. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. I'm kind of part of this live coverage on the Weather Channel for this landfalling hurricane with Jim Cantor. I couldn't believe it. And it was really, really cool. And he was the nicest guy. And if you've ever met him, maybe, maybe many of you have, and he's, a, he's one of my best friends now, but um, we talk about that time fondly, but you know, he, um, he's so, he's such a great people person and he will engage with you if he doesn't know you and he'll take the time to talk to you and to listen to you. And it's, it's really, he made me feel like at home, like I was actually a part of this coverage with him and I had no business doing so because I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but um, yeah, he brought me in and then, I, I left him my Kestrel anemometer. He's like, can I keep this? I, I remember it was late and then I had to go home. And um, he sent me a little t-shirt, a little Weather Channel t-shirt after that. And uh, I'll never forget that. And it was, it was like, you know, a month later, he sent me this thing in the mail. I'm like, he remembered me. Oh, that was really cool. And then, of course, when I started the Weather Channel, we had some good times laughing about that moment. If you could shine a little bit of light on maybe some memories or experiences at the Weather Channel, what, what it's like to work at the Weather Channel, because, you know, that... That is a television studio in the public sector, all weather, you know. So uh, can you share some of your experiences being the uh, hurricane expert in the weather channel? I remember walking in there the first day and there are these glass doors. And if you've ever been there, if you've ever been on a tour, unfortunately, we don't do tours anymore, certainly in this era era of COVID. But um, these glass doors that open up into this giant newsroom where there's a billion TV monitors, all of a sudden you feel like you're part of something really big. And I'll never forget that moment and walking in there, opening those doors. And there was a time the way the Weather Channel set up then, it was a little bit different than it is now. Things are a bit more compartmentalized. But uh, 10 years ago, where we broadcasted our weather expert station was kind of in the middle of the newsroom. So when there was a big weather story, there was so much noise and enthusiasm and, and from all aspects of the company. And we were in the middle of it. So it was almost like this, you had to really learn how to focus on delivering your message on camera during a live broadcast, because like literally right behind the camera, there was a hundred people gathering information and on the phones. And there was so much commotion. It was, we were all one big group. And that was for the first few years, it was like that. I kind of miss those days because you know, you really felt like you were part of this sort of this giant media uh, and uh, you know engine that was trying to get information out. And and now it's great in its own right, but it's a little bit different because you know a lot of what I do here at the Weather Channel is is I'm broadcasting from the lab, or I'm in a much larger studio, you know, playing more of a, a an OCM role and like an on camera meteorologist role where I don't really do so much expertise. I'm there sort of more for the day-to-day weather. Kind of going back to where you got started. Like, and even now, we look at the Saharan air layer. So uh, we know dust blows off of the Saharan desert during overnight jetting or nocturnal jetting. It gets suspended up in the mid-levels of the atmosphere. And, uh, and that sort of, it, it comes and goes in waves. So we get large plumes that come off that coast. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's, I think, I feel like there's some, somewhat of a divide in the weather community on the effectiveness of the sal. Is it debilitating? Or can it actually help a tropical system develop? I know 
folks like Michael Lowry and Dr. Mm -hmm. Steve Lyons, they're, they're proponents of saying the cell may even help develop the system in, um, in some cases. Uh, but I, I, it's sort of, it's debatable, but I wanted to hear what your perspective was on it. Well, I, I'm, I was fortunate enough in, in my graduate student days um, back in the 90s to work with Jason Dunyon. He was, uh, he's sort of an expert on the Saharan air layer uh, at the Hurricane Research Division, or was recently in recent years. And um, I wrote a lot from him. And obviously being underneath the sow is, is no good for hurricanes. It's good for us, uh, but, but the, the inversion layer that's at the base of the sow tends to suppress convection. You're not really going to get a whole lot of, you know, deep cumuli underneath it. You just, you know, the, the thermal profiles aren't stable for that. Um, it's a, it's a, the adiabatic layer that's a, that extends upward from that to 500 millibars or maybe even higher than that. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's unstable, but it's extremely dry, dusty, and windy. So there's a lot of wind shear that attends these outbreaks as well. So in their immediate vicinity, uh, they tend to inhibit and suppress convection and thereby extension tropical cyclogenesis. But, you know, on the, they're off, they often accompany these, um, you know, surges of the African easterly jet and these strong, powerful easterly waves that come off Africa that on the moist side of it, near the, the equatorial side of things. Um, now, I haven't looked at this in forever, but I can imagine there are scenarios where you can isolate a relatively moist atmosphere um, in a relatively favorable environment where there is some background vorticity or spin um, that is kind of adjacent to these sal outbreaks uh, that may be favorable for development. Um, but, but, I mean, there's no doubt that these hot, dusty, dry air masses uh, that become what's called elevated mixed layers over the uh, tropical oceans, the MDR, uh, are, are going to try to just do whatever they can to, to uh, limit convective uh, potential there. And, you know, it's, it's, I sort of make the analogy, you know, we get these elevated mixed layers over the Great Plains and they uh, um, prevent thunderstorms from developing and these hot air masses off the Mexican plateau in the Rockies. Well, the same thing happens over the deserts in Africa when you get these, you know, adiabatic layers, which extended the surface, but when they move out over the cooler waters of the nearby Atlantic, they ascend. These layers go up in altitude. And so you get this cool water uh, in the Eastern Atlantic above a very, very warm layer. And that inversion is just almost impossible to break. Uh, for deep convection. You get shallow convection, of course, but, um, you know, I, it's a good question, Shay. I yeah. mean, it, yeah. it feels like, it feels like for the most part, anywhere near them, they're going to be inhospitable, but yeah. I suppose on the edges of them, there could be some favorable regimes. I feel like the, the max uh, level of convection is limited to that, right? So they, they just no way that a storm can, can grow above a certain layer, but we have seen some of the smaller systems that get a nice little rain shield and they're able to sort of weather this out a little bit longer and a little bit um, farther out. Um, mm -hmm. So they, and then they end up becoming something bigger once they get out from under that, you know, that dusty cloud, so to speak. So it's always interesting to watch. Um, they need to isolate yeah. themselves and remove, divorce themselves from sort of that uh, unfriendly confines of the sow. But you know, if they can do that, then yeah, all systems go. <laughs> when the, the craziness of hurricane season starts to wind down, where does your interest go in the winter months and spring months? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, weather enthusiasts from basically any kind of weather will set me off. And um, so I love to cover winter storms. And 
the development, uh, the psychogenesis, especially. I've always been a fan of, of you know how that happens off the East Coast. You know, growing up in New Jersey, uh, so often seeing these big winter storms. And the problem with like the immediate East Coast, and this is always a, a fun thing for me to do now at the Weather Channel during winter weather, is to try to convey the risks in terms of rain and snow. Um, and that is a forecaster's pain in the neck. I'm telling you, uh, growing up on the coastal plain in New Jersey and Princeton, you get the wind direction move 10 degrees, you know, goes, you know, east or slightly south of due east, and you're going to get a snow to rain event and your snow show is over. And trying to convey to the public that you had a winter storm watch out and you're expecting six inches of snow and it goes over to rain. <laughs> There's a lot of disappointing school kids. I can tell you that much. I was one of them. Um, but yeah, so I love to cover winter storms and the, the predictability associated with, with that. You live in Atlanta. Uh, tell us, so what is something that when we visit North Georgia, what's something we got to go do? Go tour the wineries in North Georgia. There's some unbelievable wineries and uh, with amazing mountain views and really, really uh, just great ambiance. I mean, I will bring my weather equipment to some of these places because uh, you know, I'll go up to these uh, places, these vineyards in North Georgia that have these amazing views and you're unobstructed from the wind. So I'll not only have a glass of wine, but I'll also be <laughs> measuring the wind. So if you like the weather and you like wine, go to North Georgia. There's some really beautiful places to go. Um, and of course, downtown Atlanta, there's uh, all kinds of stuff going on. It's a lot of fun. There's pretty much anything you can find. It's a good pace the city there as well. So um, yeah, North Georgia is great. Suppose we're a Carolina Panthers fan. We're coming to visit Atlanta and, uh, um, and, and see the, see them play in, uh, in Atlanta there, play the Falcons. Um, what is a restaurant that we have to try? What's your favorite restaurant? I went to this taco place today. It's in Buckhead. It's called Taqueria del Sol. It is by far and away the best Mexican slash Latin, it was unbelievable. And the food was prepared quickly and it was just a really good experience. I'd ne- you know, one of those things where you've never been to a restaurant before and you're recommended. It's not that hard to get to. It's a little bit off the beaten path, but um, in Buckhead. So that's kind of uh, the northern side of, of Atlanta, just a little bit. I'm solid. Sounds good. There you go. <laughs> yeah, tacos. I'm there. <laughs> oh my gosh. You can find any kind you want. It's just fantastic. What's your favorite place to visit here in the Carolinas? Durham. My brother lives in Durham actually. Um, my brother's on the faculty at Duke and, uh, I, you know, so I've had family in the, the triangle area for a long, many, many years. And, um, so I come to, to Raleigh, Durham, um, a couple times a year. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, a really fun place. You know, it's funny. I was just driving around, uh, in downtown or some of the areas just around downtown Atlanta. So this kind of reminds me of, of Raleigh. It's actually, Pretty much, I mean, different scale of city, but overall, there's a lot of similarities there. So uh, I like Durham a lot because uh, I have family history there. What do you prefer, beaches or mountains? Beaches. Yeah, I I've, yeah, I know. Look, I've been a warm weather person. So when I was in Madison uh, for as long as I was, I got tired of winter and I've never been able to go back. I mean, I remember. I can relate to that. <laughs> right. I worked for so, AccuWeather for 20 years, so. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I've turned into in my adult life into a warm weather fan and much more so than cold. So I prefer the beaches and the mountains. Although I tell you, I love mountains. And I love I would love to be in a, a blizzard in in Colorado and, and just being able to experience that. But then, you know, in a few days, being able to get out of 
For our followers, uh, listeners who may want to follow you on social media, how can they do that? Twitter. Um, I'm not sure what my my handle is. Let me just check here. Uh, I think it's just at Greg Postel on Twitter. Greg, we appreciate your time tonight, and yep. we appreciate you all who are watching and listening. Uh, thanks for tuning in to the Carolina Weather Group. Be sure to check out Greg on social media and check out uh, during hurricane and winter weather events. So uh, we appreciate you watching tonight, and we'll see you back here for a new episode next week.